Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Ads Lyson, and I am the Grumpy Surfer. Before we start the podcast today, I have got a little link for you to go to. So if you want to get hold of any of the Yombi stuff that we talk about today or that I've talked about previously in the podcasts, go to www.ombi.co forward slash question mark via equals Grumpy Surfer podcast. And that'll take you directly to the Ombi page and potentially get you 10% discount off your purchase from there. Ombi are absolutely amazing. I've been using them for over a year now and my surfing has come on tenfold. And I really, really mean that. I'm not just saying that because I've been given the link by these guys. It, it really has. And I wouldn't say that and I wouldn't put it on the podcast otherwise. So today's podcast is a guy who was formerly on the English surf team. He then got into surf coaching and beach lifeguarding and now runs his own performance surf coaching program, which he is now part of the team, bringing on the young guys on the English surf team. So please enjoy my conversation with Bo Broman. Bo Broman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ads. Pleasure, pleasure to be on. Thanks for inviting me. Three questions. How are you? Where are you? And are you getting in the water to surf today? I am good. Thanks, Ed. I, um, I'm at home and I will not be getting in the water today. It is northwesterlies, zero options available. <laughs> Did you uh, did you manage to get in the water yesterday? I saw you did a little bit of coaching with some of the uh, some of the guys yesterday as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that was the first real. I think that's the first day on on the beach at Croyd that there's been for for almost a month. Um, so we were down there. I got in at first light myself with a few of the juniors, and then did a session near a high tide. It was really good. Yeah, I managed to. Um sneak up well i call it a sneaky a, a strike mission it's not really a strike mission when it's a six hour drive but uh <laughs> we managed to go to uh, a cliffy place the other side of the estuary and uh there was no one there it was we, we got in about i think it was around about 11 ish yep. um no wind super glassy for about an hour and a half until that until that northwesterly wind kicked in and then it just ruined everything. But yeah, there's three of us out on the on one peak, and uh, mate, it was it, it was yeah, it was my first surf of the new year. So I, I was uh, I was quite stoked with that, to be honest. Perfect way to start. Yeah, that sounds epic. So um, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about your background and and kind of what you do. So at the moment, you are a surfing performance coach. Um, you're part of the uh. I keep saying British coaching team for British surfing, but it's not British surfing anymore, is it? It's English. Yeah, it's English, English surfing. Yeah. Yeah. So, and uh, and you've got your own performance coaching company called uh, Bow Performance. Let's go straight back to the start, super early. You know, you know, where did you grow up? How did you get into surfing and coaching and, uh, and all that palaver? Yeah. So I grew up in Kent. Until I was about 12 years old. Uh, and then we moved, we, we visited mainly Cornwall actually on, on family holidays. 
and uh, uh, sort of how things were were transpiring in Kent. It was I had some great I've got great friends still in Kent, but um, uh, my name was Bo, and I had long curly ginger hair, so <laughs> I was quite an easy target for. I would say not not anything severe, but but some bullying when I was when I was younger, um, and I look back now and I think that's probably just at that young age. It's probably ten years old, ten eleven years old. Uh, it was just a uh, lack of kind of an identity. I think it is at that young age that makes you probably more insecure than you should be, and and you take things really badly. Um, so there was there's a lot of trouble there and I would I would get kind of deal with it in the wrong way uh, in, in getting angry about it so we thought as a family it was a really good move to kind of get out of Kent and come down by the sea uh, and we ended up in Croyd. That's a big move though right because you're going from you know Kent's Forgive my geography is in London. <laughs> yeah. And uh, to, to go from sort of like, you know, a, a main city living to go and live by a sleepy little village by the sea. Um, it, it's quite a big culture change as well, really. Yeah, huge. It was uh, really big. I think easier for, for me and my sister. Uh, a really difficult move for my mum and dad to, to just try and find work down there. Um and so we just kind of we moved to Croyd you know we came down for the for the for the sea so it was like well let's get as close as we can um so we rented a place in Croyd for oh, I can't remember how many years but it must have been about five years we, we were in Croyd um then we moved to up just up to Georgia so so we <laughs> really even quieter the, yeah <laughs> exactly um I, I remember crying when we moved to georgia <laughs> because i thought how am i going to get to the beach now um but we fixed up a bike i actually got a moped by the time we moved uh so i just sat on the board and then and it was easy um so yeah we that's that's when i moved to to we moved here to devon and that's when i started surfing i didn't surf before that so 12 years old um, moving to Croyd was probably what helped the most because getting the school bus, everyone surfed and I had one friend in particular who was pestering me every day to come surfing <laughs> and I did want to but I, at that time I was still uh, really into football and that's what I liked doing most of the time uh, and then one day I just gave in and I said let's go, he gave me a board and a wetsuit and he was so much better than me <laughs> and immediately that made me think right I want to get better than you <laughs> well 12 years old is quite a late starter isn't it a lot of the guys yeah. that you know live locally in Croyd and and you see the guys you know that are super high performance guys now through social media and you know you see the, the grum search and all that sort of thing and they're really high performance kids and they've been surfing they've been in the water since what they're, they're three years old or something yeah yeah, you see that so much, don't you? Like the nine-year-olds that are just charging and doing massive air reverses. It's, yeah, kind of early specialisation sport now. Did you, uh, did your mate give you like a stereotypical, like, you know, early 90s 
<laughs> roster that was like six oh and it was like nearly nearly 18 inches wide super thin <laughs> as well that's exactly it luckily he was a lot taller than me but i think it would have still been about five five <laughs> um I, I did quickly get my own board though uh i got a my first board was a big it was a big maybe six foot it was pretty perfect actually it didn't it was buoyant enough yeah, I mean, the, the, back in those days, though, I could imagine, you know, pop-outs and stuff were kind of really in their infancy, weren't they, really? Um, yeah. I can't imagine. It would have been a really nice board to 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 kind of learn on, but I guess you and I know kind of the same thing now where, you know, learning on something that short is not kind of like the best option to go with either. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely not. Uh, I did, I did, my dad had a longboard, uh, and I did try that, but because I think I started with my friend, you know, I had that ego, I want to surf that short board, I'm not going on a big board, and that bit was kind of the in-between for me, it, it gave me enough float, um, but yeah, like you say, probably not ideal, a bigger board would have been better. It's not exactly you can stick your dad's longboard on the back of a moped and go down the beach. Yeah. You? You'd be taking people out left, right and centre. <laughs> I never did work out whether it's legal to sit on your board on a moped. I don't think it, I don't think it is. I don't really understand. I, I, I haven't really looked into the rules because I, I haven't really got a motorbike licence, but I don't know what the rules are for having one of those little surf racks, you know, the little shoe, U-shaped things that people back on that put on the side of bikes like you see in Bali quite a lot. I don't know yeah. whether you can you can put those on the side of things because around here guys go down and um, kite surf an SUP down in um, just just down in Exmouth, yeah. and uh, I've seen a few guys put them onto like pedal bikes and uh, and and cycle down the cycle path down there. But yeah, I don't really know what the ruling is behind that. I also, I've got another friend actually who lives sort of like down um, down Bantham Way, like on the south coast. And uh, he's got like a little scramble bike and he's done a similar thing, but he puts like a massive SUP on it and, and drives around on that. But I don't really know what the rules are on it. No, I'm, I don't think I've never heard anyone been stopped. I was never stopped. So it must be all right. It's kind of a culture thing though, isn't it? Especially sort of like yeah. if you're living in North Devon, it's not like you're going to go down the M5 on a, <laughs> with, with it on the side doing like 60 because you're just going to take everybody out. Yeah, <laughs> it'll probably blow over. Oh yeah, I, do you know what I could? I remember zooming around Bali and uh, and Java on on scooters, but I don't think you really went over like twenty miles an hour, so it was kind of all right. Yeah, I think if you tried to do it here, you'd have to put like a counterweight or something on the side or a spoiler out the back. <laughs> the business here, Ads. We'll oh make mate, ideas <laughs> flying everywhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> so growing up in um. Growing up in, in Croydon and, le and learning to surf sort of like a, a latter end of the age group uh, as a kid, how long did it take you to kind of, you know, really start to to get into surfing? And because you were sponsored before you were 17, weren't you? And you got onto the, um, you got onto the, was it the British team then you got onto? Or was it the English team still? Yeah, back then, before the, all the politics. Yeah, 2009, uh, was... 2010, that wasn't it? Yeah. So that, yeah, it's exactly then. That's, that's 2009, 2010 is when I uh, got onto the British team to so go when, to the world. Yeah, when, when, did, when did that hook get in there and you're like, yeah, I'm just going to do this? 
so I would say it was instant ads as soon as that as soon as I did go for that first surf with my friend um it I just wanted to do that every day from that point I wanted to surf every day and I, I still wanted to do football but I was doing both which I think was a good thing I was I was I was doing both just as much as each other but then I started wanting to miss football training or football matches to go surfing and I'd say it was probably between six months to a year uh probably six months when I did my first Croyd Surf Club contest and that was another friend who who signed me up without me knowing actually I turned up on the day just to go check it out and um I remember they I got to the contest site and my friend saying I had about 20 minutes to go get my wetsuit on and I was padding out and uh, so I did that and that from that moment from Croy Surf Club Comp I was really hooked to them because I I got beaten so badly I, I don't think I even made it out back <laughs> yeah but that's when I knew it's uh doing your first contest is can be quite a, a daunting situation and especially sort of like you know these the conditions in this country aren't always really the best for competitions you know I mean especially back then as well you, you didn't really have a um didn't really have a swell window did you you just went out on the day that was you know booked for that comp and you just surfed whatever good waves or super shit waves which is you know generally the consensus for it and uh, you just tried to do your best exactly that's why it's so hard so Corey Surf Club's renowned to have huge and onshore conditions uh and that's why I think QS you know QS is the same kind of all around Europe it's can be really demotivating because you turn up to more contests that are bad waves than you do good waves without a window so that's and that's what I that's probably why I stopped competing eventually is is all the traveling around to to surf terrible waves got demotivated well, i mean it's kind of one of the later things i was going to talk to you about but i mean what's your thoughts on it do, do you reckon there's going to be there's going to be a british surfer on the um on the ct anytime soon or or you know at least i know there's a couple of guys um you know from wales that are on the uh on the uh what do you call it? The thing you talk uh, Challenger series. Challenger series. That's the one. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, with the conditions in this country, it's kind of it's kind of difficult to get good because you don't have that consistency. You know, you, you've got guys in America that surf in Hawaii, and, and I know Hawaii is quite seasonal, and especially you know talking to guys over on the west coast of America as well. The, the, the swell window is very seasonal as well, but there's a lot of consistency there, you know, a lot of good waves, a lot of good breaks. And, you know, the, unless you go and go down the off the beaten track in this country, which again, like you said before, is very time consuming. You just surf in beach breaks. And, you know, with somebody like you as a performance coach, you don't really have the time to, to to go, go off the beaten track sometimes with you know a group of people to teach them to coach them to surf those to surf those good waves so so I think it can be it would be quite difficult for a British surfer you know putting the whole of the UK into the equation to to really hit that 
you know super high level i think i mean what are your thoughts on that i think that definitely there will be a british surf on the ct really soon i think maybe even a, ha a handful i really i really like uh maybe that's the wrong word i'm i'm really encouraging the fact that anyone from the uk who who is training to be a professional surfer could make it anyone from uh, any anywhere we've definitely got some really really strong talent at the moment and in terms of the preparation in, in our in the conditions we get here i think you just got to be really strategic about your year so i think it's a great training ground and suits probably suits the qs style so we stand a really good chance of of qualifying to get on that challenger series um and i think as long as you're strategic and plan you have to work on your weaknesses so we know that the types of conditions we get and then you know the types of conditions you've got to get good in so as, as long as you have that structure and you make sure you go and spend a month training in these these types of waves or, or in that country then and i think british surfing is doing really good job now at doing putting some camps on in, in good waves with really good talent uh from britain so i think as long as you do that you'll we stand a really good chance of having uk surfers on the ct soon i went on the um i went on a surf trip to fort ventura a few years back and there was a guy there at the um the the kind of he was the guide at the surf lodge house that we were staying in and uh i think well i know and, and people that listen to this podcast know that i'm quite picky with when i go surfing you know i i don't live on the beach i live well i kind of do i live like five minutes from from the beach here in exmouth but it doesn't really pick that many good waves up so it takes me about an hour an hour and 20 to get to you know the south coast or the or the north coast but i generally only really go when when i know certain places the conditions are going to be going to be good um you know i'm i'm, I'm 40 now i've got family and responsibilities and blah blah blah, blah all that crap <laughs> so you know you could argue that i'm being quite picky but i'm also i think in my head i've i've surfed since i was like 14 so i've i was just kind of sick of surfing really shit waves you know rocking up when it's like really mushy and you know it <laughs> this goes out hey grumpy surfer podcast right <laughs> I just I was just like really sick of it and it just demotivated me to do it so now you know like yesterday for instance and it was going to kind of be good and we went down it was just no one was there I was like this is this is fucking amazing you know but I, I think if you're going into that competition scene and going back to kind of my point with this guy in Fort Ventura he basically said, because the waves weren't that good when we went there, he said, as long as there's a face that you can do one turn on, you know, you can practice. And uh, and, I, and I kind of took away from that a little bit, but it still didn't stop me being miserable <laughs> git when it came to going. Like, you know? There's a balance, I think, if you're saying in your situation, uh, my situation, our goals are different than those who really want to pursue that career in, in a, as a professional sport 
And so we've got to strike that balance of keeping that enjoyment level up and mo to keep to keep motivated if we keep going in when it's when it's terrible and having terrible surfs then you might have six or seven of those surfs in a row and on the eighth day it's good and you just can't be bothered <laughs> yeah it's true it's true we've digressed a little bit from your story so um, when did you start becoming a uh, a beach lifeguard and 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 uh, and getting into into surf coaching? So beach beach lifeguarding happened. Uh, I I'll actually go go back a bit. I so finished school. I went to college, and I didn't quite finish college because that was in I can't remember the year off the top of my head. But when I was about sixteen years old. Um, uh, that's exactly the year when I first qualified for the British team to go to the world and, and that world games was in New Zealand and I ended up missing a big chunk of, of college work at, at that point and then when I came back from the world so I was super motivated I wanted to train as much as I could and and smash the competitions that year so I mentioned it a couple of times to mum that I wanted to quit college and after the Worlds, well, I thought what well, getting selected for the Worlds was a big goal of mine and I did that and when I came back I thought right I took a, this almost like a business plan to my mum I said well I'm quitting college this is why and I'll go back and study when I'm ready at that time I didn't really know why I was at college I think that's the same for probably a lot you know you just go through that system and you don't kind of have that end goal of what, what you're going to do after. So I said, I just want to fully focus on training and surfing and just see how far I can go with it. And I'll go back and study. Um, so I did that. And to, in order to fund my training and, and travel, I started working at the surf school. I worked at the surf school for about four or five years, 17, 18, 19, 20 yeah to about 21 and then I started lifeguarding just just that needed that change that extra responsibility in a job so it didn't wasn't stagnant and that was so good still we always joke about it lifeguarding but it's the best job I've ever had <laughs> I've I've I've, I've done um you know over the years I've I've become a beach lifeguard and I've done all my surfing um coaching calls and stuff but I've never actually invested or, you know, gone down to the beach and actually used it properly. It was generally just, you know, so you could so you could get qualified for Surf GB, whatever it was, you know, whatever the whatever the uh, association was at the time that um, enabled you to get your your certificate for your for your surf coaching calls and and. Uh, but I, you know, in retrospect, I mean, I I don't think I could have. I don't think I could have done that anyway because I didn't live by the beach. So, you know, it, it wouldn't have really worked. I mean, like you guys, for instance, you know, the, you got you, Cotty, uh, you know, Ben as well. You know, yeah, we know each other and uh, it, 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 you, you can do that because you kind of you live in that environment as well. Um, but it was something that I would I would have I would have liked to have done, I think. Um, it would have been interesting anyway, I think. Yeah, for sure. I you're right. It, it's having that convenience of being able to walk to work, um, and for for that for the pay you get in the area, it's pretty it's decent 
pay, especially for around here, uh, doing something that you are pretty passionate about, which is being on the beach. Uh, a big draw for me was that you could surf whilst you're, not technically whilst you're working, but you get a little lunch break sort of thing, 40 minutes if the person working rotation so the person behind you doesn't want to surf which actually happened quite often then you can take their 40 minutes as well so you could end up with a and you do that at least twice in a day so you could end up surfing for two hours for two and a half hours oh i'm, I'm i want to go back 20 years yeah <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because life guardian you always had those you get the classic kind of summer day like last year where it was flat for Actually, last year was a bit of an anomaly where it's flat for almost all summer, but you do get those flat weeks where people walk past the truck and you're laying on top of the truck, kind of pinching yourself that you're getting paid to just sunbathe. Well, I wasn't. I was, I'd prefer to be in the truck because I'm ginger and I get burnt <laughs> too easily. But people go, oh, crazy job. And it is to an extent, but you could be laying there even on those flat days and it happened a lot of times during the six years, I think I was there, where it just completely catch you, not off guard, but you're, it's really easy to relax there on a, on a quiet, flat day. And then something really big happens, like a heart attack down the other end of the beach. And, and you have to switch from that relaxed mode to all of a sudden trying to remember everything and so it was it was so cool it was such a cool job there was a i mean i worked on the beach at croyd for with, with a couple of surf schools every now and again doing a bit of moonlighting when i was in the military and um you can definitely take some stories away from that as well can't you i mean you, it's really strange because i think there's this stereotype about about lifeguarding it's kind of like you've got these tv programs like bondi rescue and stuff and everybody thinks it's kind of like you know quite quite glamorous and you you're going in the water and you're rescuing rescuing people but i i i was always really surprised how unaware people are of the ocean and i've rescued a couple of people in the water um you know during my time and uh when you know when i was coaching down there and, and i was just like like what like what are you doing it, it, yeah. it's, it's crazy and and i think lifeguarding on those uh, on those types of beaches as well because the conditions can change super quickly as well subconsciously this is going to sound quite deep <laughs> so subconsciously you're kind of making your water awareness better as well because you know you, you can see right there's a there's a rip there and then when the tide change it's going to come out and it's going to whip out there and you can see those sandbanks and the tides change and stuff like that and you can kind of correlate that you know going back to the surfing conversation when you're competing or you're coaching with with, with uh, you know athletes that are are in competitions you can kind of see that changes the tides of changing uh, and the conditions are changing as well which uh, you know i think i think helps you quite a lot and it also gives you a lot more water awareness as opposed to like you know your SES guys the the saturday and sunday guys that come down and they just go and jump in the water and they go off like you know five years ago the sandbank here was good um so i think it kind of helps you out a little bit too right so true that it, it that's same for surf coaching in terms of that experience makes you 
a better coach and lifeguarding definitely makes you so aware of what's happening on the beach and it's probably more with the RNLI they really like to try and keep the same team on the same beach because a team that's worked the beach for a week can just turn up and know exactly where to put the flags because they know at what stage of tide the rip's gonna start working uh, but but generally even if you haven't been on that beach you can spot those those situations happening early enough from from the experience you get from working on the beach what do you uh, going to a coaching perspective now so what do you find is that is the most common error with with people that you that you coach and teach from you know guys that um book you to to do a coaching session from you know your, your intermediate level all the way up to kind of like your high level guys what's the most common um common error in people's surfing do you find I tell you what, I think I'm going to go with recently the most the most common one um, is is creating talk. So for, off, off of your bottom turn, using your trailing arm to reach forward when you're going into that bottom turn and then pivoting around that arm to create talk for your turn. That is one that that has come up so many times with that is definitely in fact not even recently that that is definitely the one that i end up working on with people most over the over the last well i've been surfing now what 27 years it's only the last five years i've come to realize that that trailing arm is pivotal in, yeah. in pretty much everything i used to surf and i've got a couple of friends that have kind of um you know we talk to each other and coach each other in the water sometimes and uh you know pulling that rear arm forward i used to surf like an albatross you know one arm like up at the front and then the other one up at the back so you kind of like in a crucifix position while you're surfing and it really yeah. unbalances you and it, and it shuts your hips off doesn't it when you when you come to when you come into to do like your rotations and your turns and now i'm really kind of like Steph Gilmore-esque I've got this this hand super high up here and yeah. do you know what it, it's just that one thing and turning my rear foot in a little bit as well because I used to surf like Larry Bertelman with my with my feet sort of like splayed out either <laughs> way has um has has really changed everything wow. uh, and, and well but it's just from a personal um from a personal perspective anyway but yeah it's really strange that you say that yeah, game changing. It is like you say you mentioned off balancing. That is is a really good one when you stand up to demonstrate it just on the land how that arm works. And it's it, it's crazy how you know that feeling of falling back every time you try to turn and you don't understand why you're falling into layback. You're always falling backwards and that arm's going behind you. And you can you can have a really good bottom turn. You can be really compressed. And if if you don't create torque with with that trailing arm, you'll always end up in that fight in that layback position and, and falling off. So yeah, it's game changing that that technique. I had a little read for your website, and I and I thought there was there was, a, there was one thing in there that stood out for me the most, and it's probably not hot. <laughs> it's not a criticism at all, but yeah. it, it was one of the things that I thought. Do you know what this this is? this is super important. So you've, you've got in there, you've got five factors of performance, right? 
The first one you've got is physical preparation, which we'll probably talk about in a little bit. Two technique standard, wave usage, then your tactics, which I assume is kind of like associated to competition. And then you've got psychological preparation. And I think all of those things combined as well, regardless of whether you're a competitor or you're just a recreational surfer, really, really comes into into play, really. And, uh, you know, you don't see a lot of coaches kind of using sort of principles or factors and stuff to to kind of to kind of put put forward a little bit it's all very much kind of like well you know do this do that but if you've kind of got a set format that you can carry right the first thing you need to get really good at is your physical preparation which is you know nutrition your fitness your flexibility all those sort of things that make your you know your body wellness um is 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 very important you know i mean you would have seen yourself down on the beach coaching as well you get people come down and you know this is not meant to be derogatory or anything like that but you get like the dads and the moms that come down they want to surf with the kids and you're trying to teach them to pop up but they can't pop up because they're not physically able to lift their body weight up or they can't do a squat thrust and turn their hips so they get you know that low surfing stance on a board um and that all comes with flexibility as well. So if you haven't got that, you know, full body prep and you, you've not been training to do something, it can be very difficult to crack those other, you know, four principles that you've got down there when the first one is, you know, it, it, it is, is very key. And and I think that's why probably people struggle the most when they haven't been in the water. Like I hadn't been in the water since the beginning of December. You know, I went back and I looked at my watch the other day. So yesterday was the first time I've been in the water for about six weeks. But I was like, you know, I, I like to keep in shape. I'm a, a jiu-jitsu coach and do all these things. So when I go down there, I can just put my board in the water, whack my suit on, and boom, I'm uh, I'm good to go. I might surf yeah. like a bit of an idiot for, you know, about five, ten minutes just to get my feet in the wax. But, you know, yeah. it, it's all very key. And those five things that you've got there, I think, are, you know, are, are, are key to anything. Yeah, thanks, Ed. That, they definitely help it, it, to give structure they help from a coaching perspective to be able to identify what someone needs to work on like you said the physical aspect of it there's there is it's not hugely researched surfing but it's getting better and there's a there are some really good uh, research and, and some papers out there that like the pop-up for example you've got to be able to in, in the pop-up movement you it, it requires you to move 75 percent of your body weight you've got to push be able to push 75 percent of your body weight and that's the difference between having a really nice quick fast pop-up it's not to say that that someone can't get to their feet but it's just the difference between yeah that nice explosive movement straight to your feet or a little stumble you use your knee or you have to use that that Aussie pop-up back foot front foot to help you get there. So that's one I, I really like to work on is it's a good test. Can you can you bench press 75% of your body weight? And then how many times do you do you pop up in a surf? Maybe how many times do you catch waves? Like between five or or 20, or if you're one of the juniors, then maybe a hundred. <laughs> and and can you can you do that in the gym is a really good start. What, do you focus on nutrition uh, as well a little bit with with your with your clients? Because 
you know, we both come come from a, a kind of a PT background as well. And I know that the, you know, the, the energy that I put into my body has to equate to the energy levels that, you know, that I'm exerting. So if I'm just eating, you know, rubbish food like crisps and burgers and, and stuff like that, it's not really, you know, good nutrition to go into it. And I, and I could imagine trying to educate um, Grums for in particular, you know, live off energy drinks and, uh, and Pringles um, <laughs> can, can be, can be quite difficult to say, do you know what? Ditch that drink water, eat your vegetables, eat your proteins, and you're going to get more physically stronger and you're going to feel better and last longer in the water because you're doing this. Yeah, definitely. It is hard. It's hard for juniors, but I don't, I do, I do give just advice. I don't go into too much detail with it just because I don't feel overly qualified, but I feel qualified enough to distinguish between kind of good foods, bad foods, and what's going to help with feeling like you've got energy and, and sustaining that energy. Once I did a one of the camps, the English squad camps, I I picked up a, I went into Tesco's or Lidl, I can't remember, and picked up a bag of shopping and took it to the camp and, and we had a gym session and I think it was at the end of the gym session, I, I said, we're going to do a bit about nutrition. I got out all these different foods and uh, like your brown pasta, your just normal pasta and, and white bread, brown bread and those sorts of things proteins and i asked them to plan plan a meal for their for their contest day uh and then plan a meal for uh like different bits like sustained energy and and those sorts of things it kind of went down it did go down well they guessed almost all of it right which was encouraging that everyone knows does have a good idea and yeah, so I've done that once. Uh, every now and then I'll give a bit of advice, but I don't have any kind of nutrition plans that I'll give out or anything like that. Excuse me. <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit sort of like sponsorship and then talk a little bit about, um, you know, surfing England as well. So with, with, with surfing England, you're talking about nutrition and, and all these sort of things. Um, from your perspective, from a, from a coaching point of view, um, when you've gone to these camps with with the guys, is there any is there any sort of like a formal structure there where you know they're given this information as well? You, you know, you, they've got coaches like yourself there, um, the, the other guys that are involved with with surfing England. Is there anything in place structurally? Um, like you would have like I don't know with 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 a stereotypical mainstream sport like I don't know gymnastics where you'd have these strength and conditioning coaches nutritionists is there anything coming in line with that because I know um, you know the guys on uh, on the on the teams that are doing well at the moment like you say um, like in the ISA champs and uh, and other competitions so do, do you see that is the funding coming in from the government to to do this to to kind of put it on the map bearing in mind that you know surfing now is is an olympic sport as well yeah there there is there is structure in terms of funding for for 
surfing England there isn't much yet there, there has been a really good amount actually to support athletes that's been that's been just total breakthrough with that being able to support athletes with their training um, kind of there's a there was grants not grants but funding for back in the best those sorts of things that were never there even a year ago or oh, a year ago there was but it's been doubled this year which is great um in, on the squad in terms of strength conditioning there's strength conditioning coaches on board we've got psychology coach uh team manager but they're all voluntary positions so there's not funding to pay the those people so it's all done voluntary and, and considering that it is done voluntary there is a there's a really good structure in place but it's not to the extent say like gymnastics or something where the athletes can train full time we'll we aim to do a training camp a month so we get to see them once a month and in that time you always want to focus more on surfing so it leaves little time for the strength conditioning although we're really working on on a much more involved strength conditioning plan for them and the psychology we've done psychology sessions online for them which have been really helpful quite a few of the squad members they always have access to us so they can get in touch through email and, and do private sessions uh, they want to talk more about uh, an aspect of, of the coaching we went through so the structure is really getting there it's not gold standard yet but it's, it's good do the um do the guys that you know compete uh, and you coach as well um do they do they get given game plans for you know different different types of waves and different different conditions and the competitors that they go up against or is it just kind of case you know it's a very individualistic thing where you know they they kind of surf to their surf to their strengths and to the judging criteria and um in that way do you know what i mean yeah yeah that so we do so in terms of competition tactics and competition training most of our our sessions will focus on heats so we'll, we'll run heats and at the moment surfing england are really trying i think this year is going to be the first year that they've included priority which is has, has been the huge one for us because when we go to the events like the world games or the euros basically anywhere anywhere outside of the uk every competition uses priority and with priority comes lots of tactics that we're not used to or, or that we've experienced, but the whole squad isn't that used to yet. So in our training sessions, we'll run heats that kind of put the pressure on them. So, so we might limit a heat to 20 minutes. We might do 15 minutes and just losing that five minutes is it's crazy how small amount of time that feels uh with priority we try and do priority and that at the moment involves us maybe wearing colored rash vests and then every time every time someone catches a wave and, and the priority changes we change positions but we, yeah we do a lot we do a lot to try and get them just prepared to, to know what to expect when we go to competition what's the what what do you think about the the whole aspect of video analysis when when you're coaching because i know 
you know when, when i've been down the beach and stuff every now and again i see you on the side in your in your dry robe and all your warmers kit on taking taking fit photos and uh, um and pictures of the guys how much do you do you feel that 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 plays in a in a key role with with people when you, when you're coaching and and you're analyzing them as well I was actually thinking about this this morning. I wondered if we'd talk about that because there's times where I just feel like I'm a I'm a cameraman <laughs> doing just filming to get clips, which isn't a bad thing. Uh, obviously, it's sick if you get a good clip. But I do think when I started, you don't need a camera to do good coaching. But the rate of progression is sped up massively if the people you're coaching can see what they're doing so for example like we were speaking about that trading arm if i if i said to you ads about changing the position of that arm it's a skill to be able to apply feedback so you would go out and maybe you would nail it straight away but if you could see it if i was to show you and then really quickly you could paddle back out and you've seen what your arm looked like, then you can put that into to, to practice straight away. And, and that really does speed up that progression rate of learning. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because unless you've got a friend that's willing just to sit on the beach or your wife or your missus and stuff to, to film you in the water, it's, it's, it is quite difficult. And I've said this a few times before, you know, the worst thing in the world is to have a photo taken of you or a bit of video footage taken of you and you look like an absolute, well, in, in your mind's eye, you know, it, it looks it looks rubbish because everyone wants, especially in a in a stylistic um, kind of pastime and sport like surfing, everyone wants to look like your Kelly Slaters, your Mikey Februarys, your you know your Devon Howards. They want to look like they you know they're stylish and and when they're performing maneuvers, they think they're amazing. And they go back and do you know what you didn't even hit the rail on that. You're surfing flat and. Um, you've got a massive poo stance knocking out the back. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, like you say, it, it is, it is quite, quite important. And, you know, I'm, <clears throat> I'm a bit of an advocate. I know, forgive me for this, but I'm an advocate of the guys um, at Ombi because I, I've learned, I've learned a lot from them from, you know, their, their videos and stuff that they, that they put out and, their 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 products there and that's kind of where i was talking about you know that back arm i yeah. watched a, a little bit of video footage and a lot of my photos and over the sort of like 10 15 years and you know the gopro footage which i fucking hate but it's it's there yeah uh, when i went surfing in the Maldives, a, a lot of the waves that i caught i thought were really good but then i've got this little you know this little pterodactyl wing sticking out <laughs> the back and i'm like oh my god that just looks shocking um and uh but when you start pulling all those all those bits together and um and you start working on going down to the beach or wherever you surf you have kind of like a little bit of a game plan you know this time i'm going to turn this foot in a little bit or i'm going to use this arm you're going to carry it a bit higher and push it forward and back to to generate speed and drive and pivot on um it's, it's quite important and if you can see that that, that that's brilliant but um you know, like I say, not everybody's got got that um, got that aid to be able to video them. I think there was like yeah. a, there, there was a thing that cost about a grand 
that was like a tripod and you wore a GPS. Yes. And you, do you remember you stick it in the sand dunes and it used to yeah. like to follow you? Yeah. I thought it was a good idea, but then I was like, well, if somebody knows what that is, you could just rob it because no one's protected it. You wouldn't see their face either. It would just be, you'd just be getting smaller and smaller as they run off. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. GPS from a car is just following you as you're driving around. How, um, how important do you think uh, board design is uh, for, for competition at the moment? Because the, there is... There is that stigma of, um, of you know, your standard short boards. Obviously, you know, the tail shapes and stuff do do change. But, uh, you know, I'll use an example of John John Florence um, had a picture of from Paisel put up on Instagram of, of his quiver. And they're all pretty much the same sort of shapes, but whether they've got, a you know, a square tail or a, or a pintail for for different sizes and different types of waves. Um, but the, you know, I think it was a year ago or maybe a couple of years ago, Slater just pulled out his, um, his Omni or was it a cymatic or something and, and was surfing sunset on it. And everyone was like, Oh my God, this is like, you know, it's Tom Curran because he's surfing something that isn't stereotypical of what a pro surfer surfs on, you know, what are your th thoughts yeah. on the, the board design for competition these days? That was Slater at Haliva, wasn't it? On a cymatic, I think it was. It was massive. And he was on yeah. like 5.3 or something and making it look so playful. Um, I think, so I've always worked with shapers that I give them my my weight, my height. And so when I was, I was sponsored by Billabong for uh, maybe four years and so at that time rob Bourne was shaping for billabong so he was out of france and i would just yeah give him my height my weight the kind of what i wanted the board to do and then I, I would get some boards and i regret not having a better relationship with a shaper so that i could go in uh, even watch them shape and ask questions about about what made that board do that i think over the last, so since I've not been competing three years, I've really experimented with a lot of different boards and the some amazing, some not as good, slowly sort of starting to understand more than I did. I think for me, the biggest thing is being able to try so many different ones. You have your standard sort of high performance squash which is going to be that little bit more release a bit uh through turns so a bit more uh innovative maneuvers high performance surfing so if you don't have that kind of if you're not fortunate enough to have a work with a shaper where you can tr try loads of different boards then you can just kind of stick to those parameters and and you know you need a little bit more hold if the waves are a, a bigger and go for that round tail and there you're kind of that's your starting point and then i think it's about being really honest with those shapers that you work with and and tell it's being able to articulate how the board felt and and what uh, and what you you how what you need i don't think this is coming across very well but um <laughs> i think 
little differences will make a huge difference in competition. So I know even if you change the fins on a board, it will feel like a completely new board, a different board. So you really need to, uh, my goal would be to have FCS and Futures test center with me in the van so that, that the juniors were able to go in for 20 minutes and then get out, try a new set of fins, try a new set of fins. And, and then you can eliminate, you, either you thought your board didn't work, but you tried a different set of fins with more pivot, less pivot. And now the board's alive. And so you know, okay, this is a great board with these fins or uh, it just doesn't work with any fins. Then you can go to the shaper and say, it's just not happening. Then you can work on a new, slightly different shape. That's the thing with board shape and design, regardless of whether you're, you know, you're a pro surf or high level surf, or you just kind of, you know, you, you, your basic intermediate guy that en enjoys recreational surfing is that, um, in fact, I had this conversation yesterday on the drive, on the drive back home, um, because one of the guys had just bought a fourth, there's a new fourth shape. It was a six, eight, um, five fin FCS two setup. And they were just, I was just having a conversation with him about it. And, uh, you know, this, this guy, John, he's, he's slowly building his quiver up. Um, and I, I wasn't, I wasn't kind of criticizing at all because I think like we're saying surfboard design, there's so much variety out of there, but also I think there's, it, there's false variety as well, because, you know, you've got John, John Florence to surf in the Pizel Phantom. And like, yeah, I'm going to buy that board because, you know, it looks good. But John, you don't surf like John John. You're never going to surf like John John Florence. Slater surfing a um, a sci-fi or, uh, you know, what's he on at the moment? Uh, an FRK. Oh, brilliant. I'm going to buy one of them. You know, cost, you know, 750, 800 quid. Yeah, let's do that with the fins as well. You know, because you've got to get fins and all that you know, stuff with it. But you're never going to surf like Slater. Uh, and... And I think it takes a, a long time to to really kind of finite uh, what you like to do, what you can do. Mm. And then, you know, and that's without even like you're talking about there, going into talking about fins. You know, you're talking about the board shape. Well, actually, the fin shapes is just like board shapes, but it's a different um, a different kind of demograph because it's it, like you're saying it's it's the feel of the board in the water it's how, how it holds how you turn it do you like doing long carving turns or do you want to do try and do snap because that's another set of fins two separate sets of fins have yeah. you got a 20 you know i love twin fins i whack some um i whack some kill fins on them brilliant because i just you know i'm never going to be that guy that's going to be whipping the you know trying to put the sun out with the water when smash the lip <laughs> never going to be that guy I'm going to try and hit the rail and I'm just going to try and do nice, long, smooth turns and enjoy what I'm doing. And, you know, go, going from talking about this, this guy and, and what his, his board selection is to kind of, kind of me, I feel like I've, I've gone a, a full circle. I started off surfing twin fins. Once I went to short boards and I've gone a big circle of surf quads, I've surfed tri-fins, two plus ones, bonzers. And now I've done a big full circle all the way back to twin fins. And now I'm comfortable with the quiver that I have. And I'm like, you know what? I just enjoy surfing what I'm doing. And I don't need to keep swapping my boards in and out because I've got something now that I feel that, you know, 
suits me in, in in those different conditions now i don't know whether you know you could argue that 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 I, i'm like in the small percentage of people that have been able to develop that or whether you know you know you could we could have this conversation again in a years two years time and i could go back to buying another cymatic because that was probably one of the best boards i ever had so it's kind of like it's that little gerbil wheel that just keeps going around in circles yeah it's good it's really good that yeah you got really good kind of self reflection or uh, awareness of what it is that's an age that thing really, really <laughs> like <laughs> i i think it it just comes down to your like what makes you motivated for it. do you want to catch more waves that's the main thing to improve if you want to catch more waves then then that frk isn't is maybe and depending on your ability maybe the that design isn't going to help you improve because it's going to really lower your wave count equally if if your sole mo motivation of surfing is is to be able to surf that board or to be able to do a snap or or a critical term then then I, I quite enjoy I enjoy that as long as you can pop up it's, it's not affecting those foundations but you can then so I lost my way a bit then that's but as long as uh, you're kind of happy that's your motivation then I enjoy working towards getting them to be able to do that getting you to be able to do that on that board uh, and then eventually we might achieve that and then you just want to kind of more relaxed more flow more waves then we'll change boards are you ever quite brutal with people when they when they turn up and and you know they're booked in for a session and they've got like you know they're a low-end intermediate sort of like high-end beginner and they've bought like this you know high-end high-spec board and you're like that what why are you surfing that i was gonna fucking really swear there but <laughs> <laughs> why are you surfing that and do you find and if you do do that do you find it's a difficult conversation to have with people because they have kind of forked out with with that expense and from your experience you kind of like it's it's an awkward conversation to have to go well do you know what that 511 that you've got there is not really the board that you want you really want to go a little bit high end go sort of like you know, six four, six six, a little bit more width and volume, so you can get that wave count in and practicing. Do you ever have those conversations? Yeah, I'll tell you what. That is my. That's probably one of my. Okay, this is my favorite thing about coaching is the coach athlete relationship. An athlete doesn't have to be an athlete. You know, it can be anyone that you work with. That coach athlete relationship is so important. So I'll never. <clears throat> I'll never off the back be brutal until until you know how that person takes feedback um and then and then that's a really fun process for me i'm definitely more uh i find it harder to to, to be really straight but equally if if that person and I'll, I'll put this back to the surf school days where you've got 30 different people coming in a day and you're trying to teach them how to pop up and, and, and paddle for a wave <clears throat> and everyone has a different personality and way of taking on board feedback and you have to really adjust your coaching to to allow that feedback to to sink in so if someone doesn't have the right 
I don't feel have the right equipment straight away. I'll definitely build up that relationship first to understand how I'm going to tell them that that board doesn't work. So it'd either be subtle. No, I think you should try this. Uh, what, what boards have you got in your quiver? Um, maybe try this. Or if they're just a fan of that brutal feedback, and then I, I don't equally don't mind going, what the fuck is that? <laughs> Why are we on that? And that's, uh, that's probably one of the things I enjoy most about coaching is, is that's the challenge, adapting so that your feedback is well received. Yeah, I've tried to do it to a few friends before to say like, you know, their their size and weight and it doesn't really correlate that well with with what they're riding <laughs> but when you're and especially when i've gone on um you know on the on the navy surf trips you know whether it's been the training camp or, or a sports tour you know in the maldives or south africa or somewhere like that i think sometimes it's it's quite hard for people to 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 take that feedback in as well because people don't it's kind of like we call it a shit sandwich, right? Yeah. You need you need to give them a little bit of good feedback, so which is kind of like the bun, or the or the bit of bread, and then the bit in the middle is like the shit bit. So you like you go right, you know this really isn't working for you, you know you probably need to try this or this, and then you give them a little bit of positive feedback as well as just saying, mate, whatever, what are you surfing that for? You look like a right twat. <laughs> <laughs> no, this this would work better for you. Um, yeah. but I, you know, when I've done it in previously, it's kind of like, I feel a little bit awkward afterwards, but because I'm trying to be honest and trying to help them as well, but you also get that proper shit eye off people where they're just looking at you like that going, why yeah. are you talking to <laughs> yeah. me about this? <laughs> I'm just trying to help yeah. you. That, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I actually refrain from, unless I, I never really noticed even though with all best intentions you might you might spot something that would be really helpful for someone and and i even if it's friends i wouldn't unless someone asks for that feedback i really refrain from 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 doing it because you know it just doesn't and if they ask for it then they're in a mindset that they're they're going to take on board your feedback it's so hard for it not to be perceived as a a, a, a like a dig at, at their their surfing or something you know yeah no, do you know what i've never i've never really kind of looked at it like that i always thought that i know <laughs> it's, it's just come to my head as well because i've been to gyms before and uh you know not wearing not wearing my you know my pti uh, military uniform and people are doing some absolutely shocking exercises <laughs> and i go up to them and say mate you might want to try this and then you can just see him looking at you like that, going, "You don't work here." And they go, then I try to explain like my my job, but I think I don't know whether what it is is that I just kind of it, it's the it's the the instructor in me that kind of just wants to try and help people. But like you're saying there, I've never really thought of the fact that maybe people don't want you to go up to them and actually tell them, uh, you know, a bit of negativity that could could potentially help them. Uh, I, I I don't know um probably probably the latter i reckon <laughs> yeah definitely more often more often than not more yeah. often let's talk jiu-jitsu what got yes. you into doing it my so our good friend ben uh really really helped me so i think i wanted to do it anyway because because when i went to university in plymouth i wasn't going to be surfing much uh it was something i 
my dad did or st- sort of touched on he didn't do it competitively or anything he was a competitive wrestler though um for gb but then he'd start showing me some techniques a few years before that so when i moved to plymouth for 4k this is the perfect opportunity to uh do jiu-jitsu so i, I messaged ben and said does he know any anywhere to train in plymouth and so he sent me in the direction of really good place to train and that was a check map with ian Harold. and that was really good that uh experience there was like the surfing experience when i moved to devon i just straight away thought this is epic um i like the flow of it and the learning something completely new again and the flipping hell the the physically demand the physical demands of jiu-jitsu after a round is crazy oh, yeah, I, so I, fit. I had a guy turn up um a couple of weeks ago polish guy and um he he was uh talking to me at the start you know bit of coach student interrelationship sort of stuff and he started saying to me you know so when are we going to start doing like these submissions and these chokes and stuff and i was like mate just get on the map have a little go of what we're doing uh you know and we'll talk after and we did a bit of sparring at the very end he's like i didn't realize it was going to be this hard and i was like well yeah you know one person's trying to stop you doing something can dominate you and you're trying to do the same thing to them so there's a little bit of like you know resilience there as well and uh yeah i mean that that's one of the reasons why why i started doing it was because it was like a really addictive thing and very similar to you you know i was in the gym all the time and i wanted to do something different that didn't involve like doing a program or something and i got kind of bored with it because i've been training for a long 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 time you know with, with sort of like physical um you know programs and stuff for for, for various things so you know when i started doing it uh there was so much variety there was no right or wrong way of doing anything and i just found it very very adaptive to the different kinds of pastimes that i had and yeah it was it was it just it just hooked me in like surfing to be honest yeah yeah that's it's so cool it's the coolest from when i started surfing at 12 uh done i've always like given us given any sport a go but yeah jiu-jitsu was has been there's been that one that's almost a close competitor with surfing, although I haven't been for for a long, probably four months, actually. Uh, I'll probably, I went once, maybe a month ago, but I just felt uh, in, towards the end of the summer, just with with work, I, I was really finding it hard to, to dedicate even just two hours, which is poor, and I, and I really miss it. So I've got, I know I've got to get back down to Hammer. <laughs> those blue belt blues mate that's what it is (laughs) the amount of shit i got given about that you you, you fell right into a stereotype there haven't you i know (laughs) but i'm determined i will not i will not uh i'm not quitting by any means it's just finding it's just on that that priority list for me and and getting that just dedicating that time to go back because uh I, i do love it i've got to go i can't just not go mate just to finish this off uh we're gonna do a bit of a quick fire round so um if you could surf one surfboard fin up fin setup for the rest of your life would it be thruster twin fin single fin two plus one finless 
Bonza. I can't, don't think I've missed one out. Yeah, which one of those? Twin fin, definitely. Yes. <laughs> First person to ever say that in two years. No way. Tea or coffee? <sighs> coffee. Best person to share a lineup with? My girlfriend, Lenka. Worst person to share a lineup with? My girlfriend, Lenka. <laughs> <laughs> If you could surf one place or one break for the rest of your life, where would that be? It's going to be Croy, that's where I started surfing. And tell you what, I still have had some of my best waves. Bo Broman, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Ads, for having me. And that's it. If you like the podcast, please like, share and subscribe on your podcast provider. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks. 